0: Well, this evening, we are going to continue our steady march through this passionate letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church. So if you want to open up your Bibles um, and turn to Galatians 4, that's where we're going to be camped out this evening, Galatians chapter 4. As you turn there, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think back over your life And consider, what is one of the greatest achievements that you think you have achieved? You know, when you're daydreaming about the past, where does your mind just naturally wander? What can you point back to and say, Yeah, you know what? I earned that. I feel good about that. Well, just this past month, um, very confused and strung out, I completed what seemed like this never-ending dissertation. This long and wordy paper that probably no one will ever read except Emily and myself. But that's okay, that's okay. And I know that in the next couple of weeks or so, I hopefully, we're ruling that I pass, receive this nice little piece of paper in the mail. It'll have a nice little stamp on it, at least I hope it has a stamp on it, and then it'll be, there'll be a signature of someone I've never met, but then I get to take this nice piece of paper, frame it, and it sits on my wall. And that's the height of 19 years of academic learning, a piece of paper on the wall all that work, I've got it. But hey, you know, I've really earned that. I mean, you're no longer going to receive emails from me signed off as Pastor Peter Mason anymore, but as Master Peter Mason. So (laughs) get ready for that. You know, I've worked hard and I've finally done it. And now I can sort of wear it like a badge. I've earned it. And I'm not alone. We could go around this room. I know many of the things you've There's all kinds of things that you've earned. Some of you have probably earned much higher degrees than myself. Some of you run your own businesses. You've earned that. Some of you have earned places of respect and authority in your community. You've earned the right to have the house that you have. You've earned the favor of your friends. In fact, this past week, most of our time was spent earning. Working to support our families. Spending time with friends to keep up relationships. Because that's just what we do. We earn. We earn. We earn things. That's just how the world works. You're treated and understood by what you do. Think about it. Where in your life are you not judged by what you do? Is there anywhere? At least not very many places. Just about nowhere in the world. This world has taught us to earn. We've been conditioned to earn for as long as we can remember. Earning praise and affirmation from our parents. Earning grades from our teachers. Earning playing time from coaches earning attention from boys and girls, eventually earning paychecks from employers. We learned how to earn before we even learned how to speak or walk. And so it's this sort of hardwired into the way we live and we speak and we think. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because please don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you to shrug off your job or stop trying to achieve in this world. That's not the problem. The problem, though, is with this ever-pervasive earning mentality is that it starts to creep in to the only place where we're fully accepted and loved, that is when it creeps into God's grace. That's when we have a problem. And that's exactly what's been going on in this book, and that's been going on in this Galatian church, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks. A church that's heard the message of God's grace, that's full, that's complete in Jesus, is starting to sort of trip over the idea that salvation is earned, or at least it's kept, and it's sustained by human effort. Whether it's by how well you fit into a specific culture, or how moral you are, or whether you can act and look like God's people. And as we've seen, there's this group of people, these false teachers called the Judaizers, who've come into the church spreading this earning mentality. Yes, you're saved by Jesus, but let's just be double sure and be certain. Just look a bit more like us, just make sure you follow these traditions and then you'll prove that you're really God's son. It's like my father used to say on Saturday mornings when we did chores. You've got to earn your keep around this place. That has come into the church. Now this letter was written a long time ago in the first century. Well, I don't think there are any groups in here who call themselves the Judaizers. When, while no one is this, in this church is going to force you to eat kosher or to get circumcised or to follow the Jewish law... We are nonetheless in danger of stumbling into the same trap today, of thinking that grace, of thinking of grace the same way that we think about the rest of our life is something we earn, or at least we keep by our own effort, of trying to earn our keep with God. You see, on the surface, it doesn't sound like that bad, does it? I mean, nor is it very different from what we think of trying to live for God. But the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel sounds just so subtle, so minor. Is it really that big of a deal? But in reality, Paul and say it's the difference between life and death. It's a difference between slavery and a difference between freedom. This earning mentality paralyzes us before God's offer of true grace. We just don't know how to receive favor without working for it. We don't know how to do that. And so we subtly or maybe not so subtly, trade away the one true gospel because we prefer, we prefer to work for and serve God as slaves or to reword it in modern terms, at least to act like he's an employer and we're the employees and to not relate to him as sons. We just don't feel safe letting him do all the work, do we? And so earning gives us this sort of semblance of control. We simply can't believe that eternal security and everlasting life is that good of a free gift. Well, Paul won't have it. He wants this Galatian church and our church today to know the joy and the freedom of being sons and daughters of God. Not based on who we are, what we've become, or how much we look like sons and daughters, but simply because he's gracious. So to do that, Paul wants to paint this picture of a family in order for us to remember and recognize God's grace that we need to be reminded of what kind of family we're welcomed into. We know we're in a family, we know we're sons and daughters, but what kind of family are we welcomed into? Because as we'll see, there's a way of living as God's son and daughter that is slavery. There's a way of living as God's son and daughter that is freeing. Yeah, most of us in the room can say, yeah, we know God's grace. We know that we're his children. But there's a danger that we could be operating as a slave child, simply put. So Paul's going to give us this picture to help us override, sort of override this earning mentality to see what it really means to be a son and daughter in this family. So this that's the question we're asking tonight. What do we need to know about this family? What kind of family is God welcome, welcoming us into? Now, I'm sure many of you already know the passage we're going to be looking at. And you've probably heard these concepts before, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to learn tonight because learning God's grace is just to is just as much a task of unlearning our default ways of thinking. Learning God's grace is just as much a task of unlearning our default ways of thinking. Um, when I was reading through some commentaries, I stumbled across um, the famous reformer and theologian's commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther. In his preface to this whole book, he talks about this problem of earning God's salvation and this free, unmerited gift of grace. And this is what he writes about. He said, "...it is the duty of every preacher and teacher... To quote, most necessarily know this article of grace so well, and to teach it to others, and to beat it into their heads continually. So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to give you a good, healthy, godly beating of grace tonight. That's what I'm trying to do. Because you're hardwired to think in a different way, and Paul wants you to cut it out. So, let's jump in. Would we read verses 1 to 7 with me in chapter 4, starting in verse one it says this it says "I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, first, we see this very simple point it's an adopted family, it's not an earned one. It's an adoptive family, it's non earned one. And Paul gives us these sort of two images. Um, the first one of a child sort of waiting to grow up into his in- inheritance. And the second image is of a child being adopted. So let's look at the first image in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, it's kind of a continuation on of what we saw last week. For those of you who weren't here last week, Mitch helped us understand the law as sort of this guardian, or this custodian, or put it simply, a babysitter almost. And Paul's using this image of the way a household worked in the Greco-Roman world. Because in those times, households were really, really large. And oftentimes a father would hire a tutor or a guardian to watch over his son and to educate him until he was of age and could inherit and take control of the household, Paul's saying it's kind of like that in the same way that the law is for God 's people. He gave the law to teach them their sinfulness and their dependence on God to restrain them from evil and to rule over until, rule over them until the time set when they would be fully mature and gain their inheritance. Now it 's a metaphor, so it falls apart at some points, but the main point of the metaphor that he wants to stress is this phrase, "The date set by his father." There's this distinct time when the father says, okay, you've spent enough time under the guardian. Now you are fully fledged heir. There's this before and after. Before you're under the law, working in the household like the other slaves and employees, but now you relate to me as my heir, as my true son. Here is your inheritance. He explains it further in the second image. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. He says, in the same way we were... Enslaved, but he says, But when the fullness of time, very similar to the date set by the Father, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And so what he's doing in the second image is he's putting sort of theological flesh on the bones of this image of a minor growing up in a household. It's not as simple as just simply working hard enough and getting good grades in school with the tutor or maturing and obeying through the law. In fact, in the second image, we get a more distinct, clearer picture. You had to be redeemed and rescued from slavery. You couldn't get enough A's on your report card to graduate. You'd have always been under the tutor of the law. Paul's second image informs us that we shouldn't be deluded into thinking that we can ever grow up enough that we can never get our acts together enough in order to become a free son. In order for that to happen, God sends Jesus to redeem us. Now, before we move sort of too fast, the point that Paul is stressing again in this image is this fullness of time. So, right, the the date set by the Father, and then we have this fullness of time in verse 4. Again, there's this before and after. There's this moment when God's people no longer relate to him from under the law, but as adopted sons. Now, fullness of time, that's an odd phrase. Commentators guess what does Paul mean when he says fullness of time? Some suggest that it was just the opportune moment in world history for God to send Jesus. It might have been the right time theologically. The promises of Abraham were ripe, everyone was looking for a Messiah, it was the right time culturally. Um, The Greek language was in full force. It was practically universal. So if you wanted to get the gospel message out, this was the right time. It was the right time politically. There was peace among the Roman Empire. It was the right time religiously. In the midst of paganism and idolatry, people were looking for something fresh and ripe and new. Now, I don't know what exactly, why exactly the first century was the fullness of time, the moment that God chose to send his son But the point is that there's this definitive moment in history when everything changes. When Jesus came to redeem us out of slavery and into his family as adopted sons and daughters. You see, brothers and sisters, you have been redeemed. That's different than growing up. You've been redeemed. Now, we don't often use that word in everyday language, redeem, but it simply means to buy back, to buy back something. One, one place when we often hear that word used, though, is in home mortgages. A lovely topic to talk about tonight, I know. But one day, again, Lord willing, after your final payment on your home mortgage, you will go to the bank and they will say, the house has been redeemed. That is, it's been bought back. You own it outright. It's yours, done, final. And it's in this way, this wholly complete and final way that God has redeemed us. He's bought us back for his own. By sending his son at the right time means that you are now bought by God and you belong to him. No questions asked, no strings attached. It's done, it's complete, it's final. But can you imagine how how ridiculous it would be if I were to say, go back to the bank and say, oh, you know, I really love this house. Like, I just love this house. I want to keep paying for it. Could you help me out? Like, can we set up some monthly recurring fee? Would that be all right? No one does that. Why? It's just stupid, honestly. But that's what the Judaizers and the, want this church in Galatia to do, to continue to make these payments on a home that's already been bought all right. Just make sure it's fully paid for. And Paul wants to beat into our heads that the Father has redeemed us on the date that he set, when he sent his Son. So stop acting like you're still under the law, that you need to keep paying, that you're an employee or a slave. In short, don't time travel. Don't go back in time. The date has been set. The fullness of time has come. You are a redeemed and adopted son and daughter. This is an, adop- an adopted family. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's all his doing. It's all his decision, his perseverance. You are welcomed as a beloved son and daughter theologians have often said, this is sort of the the premier image of the gospel, of being a child adopted by a father. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, which many of you will know, writes this. He says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and his heirs, and so closeness, affection, generosity are at the very heart of this relationship. So, To be right with God, the judge justifies us, and that is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by a father, to be adopted, that is even greater. This is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. End quote. Because if justification by faith in God alone is the foundation of the good news, the new relationship with the Heavenly Father is the substance of the good news. It's the end and it's the goal of salvation, Now, for those of you who know a a family who has adopted a child, or perhaps your family has adopted or is considering adopting, you will know the height of this truth personally. Both Emily and I have had the absolute privilege of each having an adopted sibling. Let me kind of show off for a second. Here they are. Um, Emily's with my adopted sister on the right. Her name is Ava, and I am with her adopted brother, Hakim on the left. The thing is, both of them... Are just as much a part of the family as we are. There isn't a second class child in the family. When our parents look at Ava and Hakim, they don't think, oh, there's my adopted child. No, they say, that's my son. That's my daughter. They're mine. That deep, affectionate belonging is the heart of the gospel. For God, in his very nature, as we see in this passage, is a father and a son. God is essentially a family. So when the Father sends the Son to wholly and completely buy you back to redeem you and adopt you, we're welcomed into this divine family. We participate in who God is essentially. Not just what God is like, but who God is. A Father and a Son and a Spirit that binds them in love. Now when Eva and Hakim were officially adopted, the judge didn't ask, Oh, is this this a good child or a bad child? Nor did the judge tell either Ava or Hakim that their father likes things done a certain way or how to make your new father happy. None of that happened. Without any action on behalf of Ava or Hakim, without earning anyone's favor, my father and Emily's father said, That one's mine. That's why adoption is such a beautiful picture of the heart of the gospel. There's this definitive moment when the father calls us to be his to belong to him in a relationship of love and intimacy. And the result is in verse 6. In verse 6 it says this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Our hearts now have this longing of a child towards a father, of this sort of childlike dependence. Many of you will know this term Abba is one of the most intimate terms in the original language. It's sort of like saying, Daddy, Now, I'm not saying that you need to start calling God daddy. I feel like that sort of cheapens it. But what I am saying is that because you are first and foremost a son or daughter of God, your entire life is to be lived in dependence on him. God is no longer a taskmaster or an employer that you work for in order to earn approval from. He's a perfect loving father you can lean on every single moment. This is perhaps the hardest aspect that we struggle with. Because like the Galatians, we're prone to self-dependence. It can be hard to actually align our hearts with the spirit inside us crying, Abba, Father. Because self-dependence goes hand in hand with this earning mentality. And coupled with the culture of politeness we live in, we're destined to struggle at this point. Let me just give you an example. Um, This past week, um, it was middle of the afternoon, and Emily told me she was going to bake a potato and make some beans very English, I know, to tide us over until dinner. And she asked if I would like some. Now, I didn't really sound good at the moment, so I said, no, I'll be fine. I'll just wait until dinner. And then about an hour later passed, and I came down. And I saw Emily was eating her potato and beans and some cheese and it looked good. And then I looked over on the, on the oven and there was a potato sitting there and some of the leftover beans. And I stopped and I paused and I said, Em, what's that potato doing over there? She said, she rolled eyes. she said, you can have it. No, no, I, I really don't, I don't need to have a potato. I'm just curious, what's it there for? Like, are you, are you going to eat it or are you not going to eat it? No, I w- No, you just have the potato. Has this ever happened in your household? You eat it, I'm fine. In fact, I've had enough, it's yours. Yeah, but were you going to have it? Silence. I knew you were going to have it. See, I'm not going to have the potato. You can have it. And by the end of the conversation, we were yelling at each other, eat the potato. No, you eat the potato. That's exactly it. That's kind of what we're like with God, though. We don't want to put anyone out. We, we, We want to look independent. We don't want to look too needy. Just be a little bit polite, just a little bit. When he's yelling at us, eat the potato. Experience my grace and love to you. Or, it's like those little bowls of free candy you see at the dentist or doctor's offices as you're leaving. At least I think you do. In America, there are free bowls of candy at the dentist and doctors. But I hope that makes sense. Now, if you're there, and if you're a well-to-do parent, you might glance at the bowl of free candy. And being a good well-to-do parent, you might kind of stop, look at it, look at the person helping with paperwork. Then when they turn their head down to continue your paperwork... You quickly snatch a candy, put it in your purse, and save it until later, right? That's what we do. But if you have kids with you, everything's different, right? The kids see the, the bowl of free candy locked in, and not just a nice little, I'll just take a piece of candy, both hands, claws in, fistfuls of candy, until you can tell them to stop, see how much they can get. Well, I'm standing here today to tell you to be like the child. Take a hold of God's grace and love with both hands, no hesitation, no worry. Don't be afraid of looking like a fool or feeling like a fool to cry out, Abba, Father, you're a child. That's what you're supposed to do. So remember, God's family is an adopted one, not an earned one. You belong to him. You have a father who has showered his grace and mercy upon you, because that's what he does, not because of what you've earned. God's grace isn't just there when you fall. It's not just like bike stabilizers or training wheels to keep us up. It's more like swimming in an ocean. It's more like the ever-presence of a father. Cry out to him. Because if you don't, if you don't, you might be in danger of simply trying to earn the approval of an employer. Cry out. But second, God's family is a promised one, not a manipulative one. God's family is a promised one, not a manipulative one. I'm going to try and go through this quickly, um, but it's a lot to cover. So we're going to read, skip down to 21 to 28, we're going to read through, where it says, Example of Hagar and Sarah. So we're going to read through verses 21 to 28. (laughs) Starting in 21, it says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Anyone confused yet? (laughs) Anyone? Come on. I was confused by the 10th time I read it, so you, <laughs> I hope you're confused, but um, if you're confused, that's fine. Hopefully, I'm going to try to help us understand this to figure out what Paul's getting at. And what I think he's getting at is that there's not only a wrong way to think about becoming a son, that's earning versus adopting, I think he's trying to show us you can still be a son and live in a slave-like way. That's why he contrasts two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, the slave son, And the free son. So let's take a look at what's going on here. Paul's using the story of probably the most well known Jewish family as sort of a pattern or an allegory to expose the ways that we unknowingly manipulate God and mistrust him. So, to jog our memories, um, a promise had been made to Abraham that he would one day bear a son. That would grow into this huge global family that would bring God's blessing to every single end of the earth. But as time went on, Abraham and his Sarah got older and older, and still no child. Where's the promise? So, Sarah, Abraham's wife, devised a plan. She just said, Abraham, you should sleep with my maidservant named Hagar. Now, good choice, bad choice? Anyone? Bad choice. Don't do that. Bad, bad choice. But they made this choice because it didn't seem to them like God could really keep his promises. So they took things into their own hands. So Abraham slept with Hagar, and she bore a son named Ishmael. But God was obviously displeased with Abraham and Sarah, and he wanted to disprove Abraham. And he told him that Ishmael, even though he is your son, he is not going to be the one to inherit the promise of being in this line that would bless the whole world. Because their plan was foolish, it was sinful, and it wouldn't amount to what they thought it would. Instead, God told Abraham, he was, he was still the God of the promise. And he will keep the promise, even though Sarah and Abraham had acted terribly, and even though they were a hundred years old. So, Abraham slept with his wife, Sarah. And together, in their very old age, Sarah bore Isaac. And Isaac was the child of the promise. A bizarre story to say the least, but hopefully we'll see that it's helpful for thinking about how we relate to God as a father who promises us a family. Now with this story, there are two ways to interpret it or to read this. So we're gonna look at these two ways. The first reading is from the reading of the Judaizers. That group of false teachers said, you need to earn your keep in God's family. Now the Judaizers would look at this story and they wanted the Gentile Christians so the non-Jewish Christians to follow the Jewish law and the customs and traditions in order to be a true son of God. So it went something like this. Over here on the right side we have the true sons of God through Isaac. And we know that eventually after Isaac, after many descendants the law would be given sometime down here. So the way you know if you're in the right line is if you follow the law, right? But the Gentiles, they, weren't in, they don't follow the law, so you're kind of like a half-son. You're a child of the slave woman. But if you really want to be a child of the promise, then you need to follow the law. That's one way of reading it. You're only half-sons. You're not fully in. But Paul reads the story completely differently. He flips it on its head. He says, you know what, Judaizers, you false teachers, you guys who want all the Christians to follow these rules and earn their keep as God's sons, you're the ones who are the sons of Hagar. You're the ones who are the sons of slavery. Because the sons of the promise are the Christians in the church who are trusting in God's promise completely and not trying to manipulate God in order to feel more confident. You see, by following the Jewish law, That is how you are enslaved. You're trying to use your human effort to ensure that God will still keep his promise. And that is just another form of slavery. So in short, Paul would say, don't try and help the promise along like you did with Hagar. Don't try and help the promise along. Trust it. Rest in it. That is where true freedom lies, the son of the promise. Not by trying to manipulate God, And achieve God's promises by human effort. So you can see Paul's point. Don't follow these false teachers. They might show you how to become sons of Abraham. But beware. Because with them you'll be an Ishmael. You'll be a slave son. Not Isaac. Not an heir. Not a free son according to the promise. Now if I lost you over the past minute, that's okay. So let me just bring this down to earth for just one minute. Don't buy travel insurance. Make sense? <laughs> no, I was saying, don't buy travel insurance. The best way I can try to sum up this um, way that Paul's speaking, don't buy travel insurance. Um, Emily and I will be tri- going abroad in August for a short little trip to Denmark that we're really looking forward to, and we're going to be flying with Ryanair. Now, I've never flown with Ryanair, but I've heard enough stories to know that it's very important to buy travel insurance, in case my bags don't make it or my flight is canceled or I just don't make it. I don't know, but just add a little bit to the bill and ensure that there's sort of a backup plan just in case. Because I don't know if I can fully trust Ryanair to get me and my luggage to my destination together on time. And that's what travel insurance is for. The problem is when we do that with God, we think, oh yeah, I know he's paid the bill. I know my final destination but I'm not 100% sure if I can trust him to completely get me to my destination. So I'll buy a little, let's call it salvation insurance, just so that I'm covered. Now, if you're flying Ryanair, that'd be smart. But Paul says if God is the one promising your flight path, you better not buy flight insurance. You'd be stupid, you'd be a fool. Because by by buying flight insurance, you are, in a sense, betting against him to get get you where you need to be. Don't do that. By buying flight insurance, you're, in a sense, betting against him to to get you where you need to be. That's not what true sons do. That's what sons enslaved by fear do. Stop buying flight insurance. So quickly, to flesh this out just a bit more A couple ways to avoid buying flight insurance. Sure, most of us aren't in danger of following some old Jewish laws, but we can still act like slave sons. So, a couple ways to avoid buying flight insurance. First, please don't think that your quiet times, your Bible studies, your church attendance are done for God. Don't think that your entire Christian life is some big payment to Him. It's not, it's a relationship. Second, don't think that God will be more happy with you or that you'll be more of a son or more of a daughter of His if you live in a certain way. You see, we naturally place our expectations, how we think God thinks of us, on ourselves. The only problem is that's not how God operates. He operates out of grace and unconditional love. He doesn't love you any less or is any less pleased with you if you fall. He's your Father. I've often heard it said like this What if Satan's strategy? What if Satan's strategy is not to condemn your soul, or what if Satan's strategy to condemn your soul involves not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead lead you to do all the right things, but with the wrong spirit? What if Satan actually wants you to come to church, lead a small group, teach, lead your home in an upright way? What if he's in favor of you doing all those things, just so long as you think that by doing those things, You're working your way to God. That's still slavery. Paul says, don't do it. Stop it. You're a freed son. He will get you to your final destination. It is our job to simply trust him and not to buy travel insurance. You are a beloved son. You don't need to manipulate your standing in this family. This is a promised family, not a manipulative one. Last, and we will close with this, it is a persecuted family, not an unchallenged one. Let's finish by reading verses 29 to 31. Starting verse 29, it says this, But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It's a persecuted family, not an unchallenged one. Paul writes to this Galatian church, holding on to the gospel of grace, and says, Just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so the Judaizers will persecute you. Now historically we know way, way back in the Old Testament, Ishmael's descendants actually did persecute and attack Isaac's descendants, but again, he's, Paul's using this image to say that if you live trusting in God 's promise, living in His grace as a freed son of God, the enslaved sons, those who think that you need to earn your keep, will persecute you, they will attack you, and your response is to cast them out of your midst. Know that your sonship will be under attack. In the original context, that may have meant that this glacier' actually kicked out. Judaizers, false teachers, and didn't let them into church gatherings. We aren't really sure what this actually looked like. But I think what Paul is trying to get at, by referencing this harsh verb, cast out, is to rid yourself of anything and everything that puts your sonship and freedom in jeopardy. Anything that seeks to enslave your way of relating to God by earning, cut it out. Sure, we don't have people in our church telling us to follow the Jewish law, to make God happy with us but we do often tell ourselves that if we go to more prayer meetings, he will be more happy with us. We do tell ourselves that if we get a little, bu- little less busy for more quiet times in the morning, that means we'll be better children. Stop it. Cast it out. And don't you dare place someone, under, someone else under that kind of slavery. So as we close, a couple of thoughts on how to actually cast out the slavery and cut out this earning mentality. So first... Beware of the moments that you look educated, clean, and in order. Beware of the moments when you look at your life and you think, yeah, you know what? I've kind of got this under control. Because there's a very good chance you're on the edge of self-dependence and not Abba dependence. Those moments are often more full of temptations than the moments when you're broke down calling on God. Self-dependence hates Abba dependence. Second, Stop looking around the church to see where you fit on the scale of maturity and obedience. Stop comparing your relationship with God to others because by doing that, you're going to hurt them and you're going to hurt yourself. Your freedom and their freedom is on the line. Stop comparing yourself on the scale of a Christian work ethic. Before you know it, you'll turn into an Ishmael. Third, see moments in your life when you actually have to cry out, Abba, Father, as God's grace to you. If the height of the gospel is God calling us as a son to a father, then those moments are not meant to hurt you, but to bring you deeper into the gospel. Four, stop thinking of grace as just God's response to your bad moments throughout the day. Think of his grace as his beaming favor and delight as he looks at you all day as his son. And daughter. Finally, fifth, don't buy travel insurance. You don't need it, it ruins the journey. Don't bet against his promise to get you home. You'll enslave yourself and distance yourself from the Father who wants to uphold you and love you. He wants you to know the freedom of just being his beloved son and daughter. You belong to him, you're redeemed. It's done. It's finished. You've been adopted. End of story. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to stop and recognize that every hour we need you. We want to stop and thank you that however we might be feeling, whatever type of week, day we might have had, you still look down on us with your beaming favor as your. Free sons and daughters. We ask that you would keep us from an earning mentality, keep us from our own slavery, and remind us that we are your beloved children. We pray it in the name of Jesus who has redeemed us. Amen.